Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Fazel Rana about evolution. Dr. Rana is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He's the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who Was Adam, Creating Life in the Lab, The Cell's Design, and many others. He holds a Ph.D. in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. It'll be an exciting show, and you don't want to miss it. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Fuzz Rana. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you again. Why is this issue important for Christians to understand? I mean, there's bad science when it comes to refuting evolution, sometimes so bad that it gives Christianity a bad name. And on the flip side, I think there are a lot of people that almost feel like it's not even worth talking about evolution. Let's just ignore it and go on to something bigger. Why should we be equipped and able to talk about this issue in a coherent way? Well, you know, I think maybe the the short answer to that question is ideas have consequences. And, you know, as Christians, we need to think through what really are the implications of embracing a particular idea. You know, I didn't uh, uh, grow up as a Christian. Uh, I was an agnostic when I was in college. I I thoroughly embraced uh, the evolutionary framework, the idea that life's origin and design and history and distribution on the planet could all be explained through evolutionary mechanisms. And I can remember, even as an agnostic, being in college classes where, as we discuss questions of origins in the life sciences, uh, how the implication was that if evolution could explain everything, then God really isn't needed. And I meet so many people that I uh, interact with who have training in the life sciences who have essentially embraced that particular perspective. And so the idea here is that if, if mechanism alone can account for everything that we see in biology, then to say that, that somehow there is a creator seems to many people to be completely superfluous and completely unnecessary. And so, you know, we want to think through uh, what ideas that we latch on to, what ideas we embrace, because, again, ideas have implications. And, you know, if uh, evolution is the way that we explain reality, uh, at least in biology, then it means that an unguided, historically contingent process that's just simply cobbling together new designs from old designs is the way to explain biology, which means there's really no direction to the history of life on Earth. There's no ultimate meaning or purpose to life. And that human beings are nothing more than than animals that are just part of an evolutionary web. And so you might be able to say, well, God maybe used evolution to create, but that doesn't really seem to follow from the very nature of the mechanism uh, itself. And so... To me, you know, we want to think critically about the evolutionary paradigm. We want to recognize that this is indeed a mainstream idea within science, 
that there is evidence that supports at least facets or aspects of the evolutionary paradigm. But I think we want to be careful about thoroughly embracing the evolutionary paradigm because I think there are metaphysical implications that really undermine some foundational ideas of the Christian faith and ultimately rob human life of meaning and purpose and, and, and even dignity. Yeah. If metaphysical naturalism is true, and this is the philosophical idea or the philosophical belief that there is nothing other than the material universe around us, which, of course, if that's true, you have to have evolution. If metaphysical naturalism is true, then there is no morality. There are no ethics, right? There is no ultimate meaning or purpose. Our origin is chaos and our destiny is death and that's it. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Now, I think one thing that we want to be careful about here is uh, just because evolution is true doesn't mean that philosophical materialism or you know or, or atheism necessarily naturally follows. But I see so many people justify philosophical naturalism, philosophical materialism, by appealing to the to the evolutionary paradigm. So. And again, when you think about the very nature of, of of the evolutionary process and the claim again that this unguided mechanism is producing life, it's really hard to square that with something that somehow says that God is employing a process like that and and, and uh, to to bring about creative purposes or his creative intentions. So to me, it's just really difficult to get the evolutionary framework to jibe with a theistic and specifically a Christian theistic worldview. Uh, but evolution itself doesn't necessarily mean philosophical naturalism or materialism is true, but it's always used in service of that worldview. Exactly. So if naturalism were true, then they would have to have evolution. But if evolution were proven true, and I think we'll discuss how that's not possible, but let's just say, for example, if it was that, of course, would not mean that God does not exist. Right. It, but it does, it would probably raise a lot of questions about the, the validity of certain critical uh, theological doctrines. Yeah, exactly. You know, particularly relating to the origin of humanity and the nature of humanity. Absolutely. Now, before we move on, we've been talking about naturalism, so. I've heard evolution described as the only game in town. If you presuppose naturalism, you have to have a natural explanation for what we see on this earth as far as life and biodiversity. So evolution isn't necessarily something that comes from the evidence, but it's something that comes from a presupposition of naturalism. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly correct. That is, you know, if you embrace, even if you embrace um not just simply philosophical naturalism, but methodological naturalism, mm -hmm. which is the view that in science we simply employ mechanistic explanations to explain the universe and phenomena within the universe. Even if you embrace a methodological naturalism as opposed to philosophical naturalism, and you very well may be open to the idea of, a, of, of God's existence, you still have forced yourself into, by default, by definition, having to rely on some kind of evolutionary uh, model to explain the origin and the design of life and the history of life. And, and so, in other words, 
a significant portion of the support that the evolutionary paradigm gains is actually philosophical. <laughs> that, it, that is, it's a philosophical necessity uh, where you have, by either embracing philosophical naturalism or methodological naturalism, excluded entire categories of explanations mm. for why life is the way that it is without ever really even evaluating the evidence. And it's, in, it's my contention that some of the most compelling evidence that people will cite for biological evolution could be readily accommodated within a, a creation model or an intelligent design framework. That is, that the evidence that people will point to as evidence for evolution doesn't uniquely support that theory or doesn't necessarily compel that, uh, uh, the evolutionary paradigm as an explanation. It's only viewed as being significant evidence in a, in a methodological naturalistic framework or a philosophical naturalistic framework. I've heard you talk, too, about evolution missing out on the predictive power of creation. Now, people that assume naturalism might miss out on a theory that offers more in the predictive arena. Am I correct on that? Yeah, yes. And, and you know, and the way I would say, at least uh, phrase part of that, that point, would be that many times what we see are failed predictions that are associated with the evolutionary paradigm. Uh, or we see observations that don't naturally fit or aren't readily accommodated within an evolutionary framework and those, you know, those failed predictions, those awkward fits don't count against the theory or against the paradigm because, again, there's, the paradigm is the only option that you have. And so I think this gives people the, the misperception that there's more evidence and a stronger evidential case for evolution than actually exists. And mm. the fact of the matter is you can develop you know, predictions for, uh, for an intelligent design framework or for a creation model framework that could evaluate those frameworks that are, uh, again, just scientific in nature, where these are predictions that flow or, or logically follow from, you know, certain um, views about how God may have intervened or an intelligent agent may have intervened to create or to shape biology, and there's logical you know, consequences or logical outworkings of that that constitute predictions that that allow those ideas to function just as much um, as scientific ideas as anything that flows out of an evolutionary framework. It's almost like whatever the situation, somebody's going to hodgepodge together an evolutionary response for it. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, the phrase that you here oftentimes used to describe what you're describing it is uh, just-so stories. Yes. There are all these evolutionary just-so stories that many people will elevate to the level of an actual explanation when, in, in, when the fact of the matter is it's actually not the case whatsoever. They are not bona fide explanations uh, of how things are the way that they are. You know, but, you know, Something that I think is really, uh, you know, to me very interesting when we think, when we look at the history of biology, is that the, the, the chief evidence that people today will cite for 
for biological evolution are the shared features that organisms possess that naturally cluster together. Hmm. These are called homologies, and the classic textbook example of a homology would be the forelimb of vertebrates. So in the human arm, we have a long bone called the humerus, and there's the radius and the ulna at the, you know, that extend beyond the elbow, and then we have bones in our hands and, and finger bones, uh, wrist bones, bones in our hands, and finger bones. This is called the, the pentadactyl architecture, the five-fingered architecture. Well, that same general design essentially describes the forelimb of every vertebrate. And so, uh, you know, a whale's flipper, a horse's hoof, a bat's wing, and we can go on and on and on, all have that same design. But what's interesting is that that design has been modified so that those forelimbs can perform very different functions. And so this idea of homologies actually predates Darwin's theory of evolution by nearly 50 years. And one of the scientists who really helped to articulate the concept of homology and who probably founded or played a key role in founding what's called comparative anatomy was Sir Richard Owen. And prior to Darwin, Owen interpreted uh, the, the, the homology that we see in the, in the vertebrate forelimb and homologies in general as essentially reflecting an archetypical design that exists in the mind of a creator. And for Owen, the fact that a creator could use a common template to design or to build organisms, but yet build that template in such a way that it could be modified to carry out a range of functions was the ultimate expression of design. And so he saw these homologies in a design framework. Mm. Now Darwin comes along and he replaces the archetype with a, a, a hypothetical shared ancestor where he says instead of the archetypical design, that, that, that design that we see is found in the ancestor and then evolutionary processes modify that, arc, that, that, that design uh, as the different evolutionary lineages diverge. But the point here is this, is that, you know, so often people will say homology is the chief evidence for evolution, but yet what's interesting is that that concept was developed and articulated uh, prior to Darwin, and if people were not scratching their heads in terms of how to explain homology, but rather had a very natural explanation. And what's even interesting is that the people that were advocating for this archetype biology uh, looked at even vestigial structures, like the, the, the whale's pelvis, and said, of course the whale has a pelvis, because if the whale didn't have a pelvis, it would be a violation of the archetype. And so they didn't see the vestigial structures that many people would argue, again, uh, means that homology has to be understood in evolutionary terms, they didn't see it that way. And mm -hmm. so the, the, the broader point that I'm making is the, the, the worldview that you adopt really shapes the conclusions that you draw from the same set of evidence. And, and so what's happening, again, this going back to our larger point, is that when people embrace, again, methodological naturalism minimally or, you know, or philosophical naturalism, you have to interpret homologies in a evolutionary framework. That's the only option you have. And of course, in that framework, homologies provide evidence for evolution. But if you relax the restrictions on how you interpret the data, 
homologies could be just as easily understood in a design framework. Uh, and, and there's a there's even an elegant rationale for why a creator would design a world it, using the same templates and the same designs. I was just in Africa, and I saw horse-drawn little carts all over the place. I could look at those and think, oh, those naturally turned into cars over time. Or I could look at those and realize that the four-wheel model was a good model that humans had chosen to use because it worked and it was viable. That that kind of like in a very simple way of thinking about it, what you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Or kind of a, a goofy example that I like to use is think about uh, a black plastic silverware. If, if you came across, you know, black plastic silverware where you have spoons and forks and knives, you would look at those and you would say, uh, in an evolutionary framework, you would say, well, there are shared features that these pieces of silverware have, which means that that common ancestor that gave rise to that silverware must have had those shared features, and, and yet they, the differences much, must reflect some kind of evolutionary divergence where natural selection shaped those different pieces of silverware to accomplish or to, to adapt them to to very different types of functions, right? Mm-hmm. And then you could say, and the evidence that we have for this evolutionary history is a spork, right? Do you know that, <laughs> yeah. that utensil you get at a fast food place? It's kind of like a fork and a spoon. Now, this is a silly example, but people would look at that and say, well, here's that, that transitional form that clearly indicates that a spoon and a fork must have shared a common ancestor, <laughs> right? And, mm-hmm. and knives must be... That, you know, must have diverged much earlier from that evolutionary history. And, and, and so th- this is, again, a silly example, but what it's highlighting is I can take, again, pieces of silverware and interpret that, their origin in an evolutionary context, but we know that those silverware, that silverware was designed and, mm-hmm. and that the, the, the archetypical design is done for a variety of reasons, uh, some of which are aesthetic in nature. or and, and so why wouldn't a creator create a world where you have these shared designs that reflect in part the artistry or the aesthetics of the creator? But, but an idea that I've been playing around with is that there may be even a more profound theological reason why a creator would create biology around shared archetypical designs. And that is what it allows us to do is to make sense of the living world. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it's remarkable to think that you could study, for example, a, a bacteria, and from studying a particular species of bacteria like E. coli or Salmonella typhimurium, you can learn essentially the basics of how bi- biochemistry work, and those basics are applicable to life throughout, throughout the living realm. In other words, by creating life where there's a common set of biochemical uh, uh, systems where life is built around similar uh, anatomical and physiological designs where there are these shared features. Uh, it allows for the, the living realm to be discoverable. That is, it makes biology even possible. It allows us to make sense of a living world. If a creator produced a world where everything was different, 
then it would be impossible for us to learn anything about biology. What we learned for the bacterium E. coli would only apply to that bacterium. And so it's like as if God has designed the world, the living realm, to be discoverable. And this is really important because I would argue that it helps us to see God's glory uh, in the living realm, but more importantly, it allows us to take advantage of the living realm uh, for, uh, for human progress and human flourishing. That is, you could see this as, as part of God's providence and his, and his loving care and compassion for, for human beings. So I think there's really, really good theological reasons why God would create, you know, using these quote-unquote homologous designs or these archetypical designs. So the point that I'm trying to make and, and taking a long time to do it, and I apologize, is this, that, there, that, there's, that we're just not simply offering an ad hoc explanation for why there are shared features in biology, but rather we're saying that there is a, there's a very deep, rich history in, in, in the life sciences where people saw homologies as reflecting the work of a mind, and that there is, there is a rationale that goes beyond just simply aesthetics that explain why a creator would do things that way. And so it's a fully flushed out, rich uh, presentation of a, of, a, of a model, if you will, for why biology would look the way that it looks. And of course, shared features don't necessarily imply shared ancestry. I, I see where you're going with this, and I really like it. It also reminds me of the anthropic principle and the fact that God has created this universe with the intention of being found by observers in the universe, and it makes sense that that would happen in biology, just like it happens in astronomy. Yeah, and you know, this is the, the privileged planet idea that you're bringing up, mm-hmm. uh, that, that Jay Richards and Guillermo Gonzalez argued for, uh, Hugh Ross, my, uh, my mentor and my friend, also has made a similar argument that, that the Earth seems to be uniquely positioned <laughs> in our galaxy and our galaxy within within our universe so that the universe is actually observable and discoverable. Uh, and, and so, this again, this idea that, that there's design for, that the, that the universe is designed for discoverability or that, that, our, 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 that the planet Earth is designed for discoverability, that that same principle also applies to biology as well. Uh, you know, which again is significant when we think about the idea in Scripture that God has revealed Himself to us through the record of nature, through what theologians would call general revelation. So there's an assumption of shared ancestry based on some shared features and homologies. You and I both took organic chemistry. For those of you in the audience that took organic chemistry, you'll never forget it. And, well, you'll forget plenty of it, but you'll never forget the experience, I should say. But in (laughs) organic chemistry, I remember just hating and hating those uh, reaction mechanisms, pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of reaction mechanisms and intermediate geometries and reagents and conditions and temperatures and all these different things that I had to keep track of. I couldn't just say this turns into that. I had to explain how this turned into that. Now, you talked about the just-so stories, and I think that's what happens in the evolutionary side of the spectrum is there's just an ad hoc 
well, X turned into Z. That's just the way it is. It's just how it happened. But there isn't that explanation in the middle of how this went from X to Z, correct? That, that's exactly right. And, and uh, a recent example that I, I've seen where that very <laughs> problem rears its, its ugly head has to do with the origin of complex cells or eukaryotic cells. The evolutionary model is that eukaryotic cells emerged when bacteria began kind of ingesting one another, creating these what they call endosymbionts, symbiotic relationships between a mother cell that has engulfed a smaller cell that then kind of sets up permanent residence inside the cell and then over time gives up its genetic material and kind of degrades into, into, into an organelle. And, and so one of the organelles that people will classically explain through the endosymbiont hypothesis is the, the origin of mitochondria, uh, which are these bean-shaped organelles and cells that play a number of roles in metabolism, one of which is uh, the production of energy for the cell. And one of the things that happens when a, when a mitochondria is formed uh, in the cell is that the, the, the proteins that are used by the mitochondria have to be imported, at least a significant number of them, have to be imported uh, from, the, the, uh, from the cytoplasm into the mitochondria. And so when you're trying to explain the origin of mitochondria in evolutionary terms, you have to explain along with it the evolutionary origin of this protein transport process. And it's an incredibly involved and elaborate process. And uh, I was reading a, a journal article, <laughs> you know, <laughs> written by a, a scientist who is working as an expert in this area, trying to understand the origin of mitochondria. And literally, when it came to the explaining the origin of of, of the protein transport process, he, this, this uh, scientist wrote that this is a very difficult problem and that somehow it evolved. <laughs> and and that's, that's the explanation that's, that's found in journal articles, and yet that explanation is accepted. And so, because when you try to work, it's one thing to understand how you know, this protein transport process works, which would be analogous to understanding what happens in organic chemistry when you react compound A with compound B. But as you pointed out, the real problem is when you're asked now to draw the mechanism for that reaction when A plus B reacts to form C or form C and D, you know, uh, as examples. And, you know, how are the electrons moving? What bonds are being broken and formed? What is the sequence of events? What are the transitional states? You know, you're not, you're not allowed to get by with, you know, not knowing that, that mechanistic pathway. And yet when it comes to explaining something like the origin of, of protein transport into mitochondria, there is no, we understand the process, but how did it arise? What was the mechanism by which it evolved? And nobody really knows, uh, uh, but yet people are absolutely convinced that evolution had to, had to shape it. And that, that conviction is reflecting really a philosophical commitment mm -hmm. to methodological naturalism minimally and probably philosophical naturalism. And, and, and so it, it really is as much a faith statement 
as it is anything else. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of our interview with Dr. Rana. We'll be having the second part of this interview next week, so definitely tune back in for that. You can also go to godsolutionshow.com and get this interview under the Past Shows tab. Well, evolution is not true, and I think that we can believe with confidence what we read in the Bible, that we are here for a purpose. You were designed by a creator, and you are not an accident. If you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to take that step today. The Bible says that God loves you and that he created you to know him personally, and that an eternal life in heaven with him awaits those who put their faith in him as Savior and Lord. If you've never taken that step, please, right now, why would you wait another day? Come to Jesus. Tell him that you believe in him and that you know that God raised him from the dead, that he died for your sins, and ask him to be your Savior and Lord. I know that if you take that step to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, he will adopt you into his family, and he will guarantee you a life of meaning and purpose on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. I know that because he promises you that in his word. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you already do know Jesus, I pray that you'd share your faith with those you know and use what you're learning on this show to help others find him. I hope that this doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. Go to godsolutionshow.com, check out all of our past shows, leave us a few comments, let us know what you think. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.